responsible and certainly sexually responsible. And being the adult in the room, whether I'm the teacher, which I often am because of what I do for a living, or when I'm with my baby sister, when I'm her older sister, when I'm the older cousin, when I'm just the grown-up who's in the room, I have a responsibility to really think about what am I communicating to these young persons about things that they might already be feeling or experiencing or things that are already happening in their families. What are the little things or big things that I might be saying that are giving that person kind of the framework that they're going to go through the rest of their life with. So long story short, at the age of 15, I started teaching sex ed with this um, activist student group that I was a part of on my campus. And then when I went to college, I continued doing work in sex ed and started adding on alcohol and other drug education, um, started adding on mental and emotional well-being. Um, I'm a yoga instructor now. I do a lot of work around social emotional wellness, around trauma responsive education, and self-healing from trauma. Um, I'm a witch. I read tarot. I do all kinds of stuff. That's a different, that's a different thing. Um, but with Sex Ed for All specifically, the, the mission and the manifesto that I have on my website is you know, I believe that all people deserve an integrated sex life and a healthy pursuit of pleasure. And the short version of that or what that means to me is I think in our day-to-day -day, we've been taught to think of our sex life as separate from our real life. That our sex life is this secret thing that you don't talk about in the real world. It's you know it's only between you and maybe the people you do it with or those friends that you talk about it with, those very specific friends. Um, and I think that separation of, well, my sex life is different from my family life, it's different from my work life, it's different from my fitness, it's different from my, all of those things, when in reality, we're, we're our whole selves everywhere we go, right? Like, I'm the same person that I am in the bedroom as I am at work, as I am with my family, as I am with my friends. Those are different contexts, but I'm bringing all the same things with me in those places. And so when I say integrated sex life, like, yeah, the, the organization is called Sex Ed for All because that's my primary area of expertise sexual health and sexual identity and sexual pleasure, um, but it's really about whole whole body, whole mind, whole spirit healing, starting with, I think, the thing that we are first taught to hide from the rest of the world, and the thing that we're first taught to be the most ashamed of. That was a long answer, but <laughs> I got it, though. I got yeah. it, I got it. <laughs> thank you, thank you um, for the nice introduction. Yeah. So now we know who she is, we know she's qualified and all that, so now we'll get to the questions. Um, thank you for that. And I kind of want to start with what you suggested um, when we first spoke a while ago, and that's, um, you know, before we have sex, we need consent. You know, we need everybody to be on the same page and all of that. So what is consent? Okay. What is consent and when do you feel it should be taught? Oh, okay. Well, so I'm actually going to start with that second question, because I think that second question is the easier question to answer, which is uh, comprehensive sex ed K-12. That's my, like, stock answer for when people ask me, especially in the last couple of years, this whole Me Too movement and conversation is happening um, at a different level about what sexual harassment and sexual violence looks like in our day-to-day. A lot of people ask me the question, like, how do we solve that? How do we make it better? Comprehensive K-12 sex education. And when I say K-12, I don't mean going into a kindergarten classroom and teaching them how to put on condoms, right? Like, that's obviously not developmentally appropriate um, and also not relevant to what kindergartners are thinking about at that age. But what kindergartners are thinking about is how they relate to other people. So, you know, go back to your kindergarten, first grade days, right? Those old report cards that you used to get, it was not about math and science. What was it? Sharing, right? Like how well you apologize when you hit somebody on the playground. Right. 
oh, little so-and-so, you know, is really chatty in class and they're, they're learning how to regulate their behavior in the classroom, right? You are learning how to be a little person and that's what you're graded on. And that happens, I would say, usually depending on the school until you're in about second grade. And then the shift goes really hard towards academics. It is kind of this expectation that when you're a really little kid, you have to be taught how to interact with other people. But by the time that you're 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, if you haven't figured it out, you're just an asshole, right? Like, that's just your personality. <laughs> As opposed to, you don't have this skill that we need to teach you. Um, so, consent. So there's, there's a whole 90 minute keynote of this that I do where I just talk about consent for a whole hour and a half, but we don't have a whole hour and a half and we have a whole lot of other things that I want to talk about. So the Spark Notes version is, um, who here ever talked about consent in a classroom setting, period? Not once. One person, okay. So more often than not, I say this because I'm mostly teaching in middle and high schools. When I'm brought into a middle or high school to talk about consent, the number one thing that they want to drill into the student's head is consent equals permission. And people, so I'm going to give y'all a little bit of a history lesson. Um, once upon a time, sexual violence was understood as a property crime. Y'all understand what I mean by that? Right, so if somebody was violated, usually a woman, it was considered a crime against the man who owned her, essentially, so her father or her husband. And so during the sexual revolution, feminists were looking for a new way to talk about sexual violence that actually put agency in the person who was violated, right, as opposed to this other third person who was not even present to this interaction. Um, so they came up with this idea of consent, which comes from the legal consent, like medical consent or consent forms, permission slips, yada, yada. When you sign a consent form at the doctor's office, what you're signing is, I understand the risks involved in what I'm about to do. If something happens where I feel bad at the end of this interaction, I'm releasing you from liability for being responsible for what happened and how I felt about it. Now, I don't know if y'all saw, there was like this, some like college guy was trying to make a consent app on your phone where like literally you would have like a, like, put your thumbprint here and then you get the consent and now it's all cut and dry.
casual sex and you can still have that mentality of, I want to make sure that this other person is comfortable, I want to make sure that I'm comfortable. Everyone's happy. So that's what consent is, is empathy. And on the topic of just like, you know, being empathetic and everything, I guess where does, um, how do you handle someone who's in quote unquote compliance mode? So, uh, due to my research, <laughs> that's like when a person is like too shy to assert themselves. Like I feel like it's kind of obvious when someone's not comfortable with something, but like if it's hard to like fail, like how, how do you handle that being the person who's too shy to speak up and being the person who wants something to happen and, I guess realizing that the person is just shy. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, before even going into to strategies and how to deal with that, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what this compliance mode really is. That you know, it's it's not always just a matter of somebody being shy or not being assertive, but that that fight or flight instinct. Mm -hmm. um, really, more accurately, it, it could be called fight or flight or freeze or comply. That that's actually a, a very natural and very human response to feeling afraid or feeling threatened is I'm just gonna play along to get along, right? Right, and like make sure that nothing this doesn't escalate any further, mm -hmm. and that actually feels like the safest option in that moment, um, especially if that person has had an experience of trauma in the past where right. compliance was the thing that helped them get out of that situation as safely as they felt like they were able to. Um, so if you are somebody who knows that your tendency in the extreme situation, whether it's sexual or not, is I just kind of freeze up or I just kind of want to get things over with as quickly as possible, um, that's something that oftentimes it's not just showing up sexually, it's showing up in other places too because it's a response to fear. So sometimes starting with the non-sexual situations and starting to deal with that reflex um, and rehabilitate that reflex non-sexually can help you become more aware of it when it's happening during a sexual moment. It's one of the reasons why meditation and mindfulness are so helpful for survivors of trauma, whether it's sexual trauma or non-sexual trauma. Um, but if you're somebody who, you know, you feel like you have a partner who does this, because I'll be honest, in the work that I do with adults especially, um, you know, obviously people of all genders can fall on, on every end of the spectrum, but more often than not, I hear this as something that women experience right. or something that men who have sex with women say, you know, I see this happening with my partner. I don't really know what to do about it. Um, first things first, if, if that compliance is coming from a feeling of fear, the number one way to undercut that is to remove that feeling of fear. So giving as many cues to that other person, one, that we can stop any time, be right. that I'm paying attention to whether or not you want to stop, right? So not always putting the onus on that person of, you know, well, if they don't want it, they'll let me know, right. but actively checking in. When I teach this to, to kids, to middle and high schoolers, we talk about red lights, yellow lights, and green lights, right? So a red light being, obviously, if this person is saying stop, if they're pushing you away, that's a red light, that's no-go. If that person is saying yes, if they're pulling you closer, that's your green light that's showing you that they're really interested. But let's say, I mean, I usually give them an example of food, because for whatever reason, cooking for somebody or feeding somebody, that's a place where we understand the importance of empathy and caring about whether or not they like it in a way that sometimes it's harder to understand for sex or it feels more awkward for sex, right? So if I have somebody over for dinner and they're kind of pushing the food around on their plate, I'm gonna ask them, is everything okay? Right, whereas sometimes, I think especially with teenage boys, we'll say things like, oh, but if I say something, it's gonna ruin the mood. Like, it's gonna make things awkward. Well, what's more awkward is you're sitting there across from this person who's pushing food around their plate, and they're not, they're not into that, and you're just kinda trying to make them keep 
conversation that we have as human beings is nonverbal. Um, and as much as, you know, I sometimes question, I'm going to be totally honest, especially when talking to, to perpetrators of sexual violence who say, like, oh, it was a miscommunication, or oh, I, just, I didn't realize. I sometimes question how much of that is willful ignorance. Right. Like, you really didn't notice that, like, that person was not, you know, kissing you back, or their body language was all off, that was really awkward. These are things that our brain is really primed to notice about people, is their body language. It's the reason why, you know, 30 seconds before things pop off on the train, you know something's going on at the other end of the train because you're noticing that body language without even being conscious of it. Right. So you need to tell me in an intimate moment with somebody, you didn't notice their, their body language. Um, a lot of it is just being really tuned into that body language and being willing to have conversations or ask questions that might feel awkward. I say that in quotes because I've been teaching sex ed since I was 15, so I'm like, what's awkward? Like, I, I work in a sex shop right now, that's my health insurance job, and people will be like, oh, what's the weirdest thing people ask about the sex shop? I'm like, nothing. Nothing's <laughs> weird. It's all weird. You're probably weird too. <laughs> You're all weird. Yeah. You're all weird. Cool. Okay, so now we both, we're consent, we both in the game, we're ready to do this, the game is cracking. Um, so I'm curious to know what is your personal definition of like a healthy sex life? Yeah, so I believe that everybody has the right to pursue exactly the type of sex life that they want to have. As long as it's a healthy pursuit of something that feels pleasurable to them, you're not hurting anybody else, you're not right. self-harming through sexual activity, which is absolutely a thing that people do. Um, but if it's coming from a desire, a healthy desire for pleasure, there's all different types of sex lives that can be healthy sex lives. One person's healthy sex life could be somebody else's nightmare. Right. Right? Like there are some people, for perfect example, celibacy. I feel like conversations about celibacy sometimes try to apply blanket rules to very individual things. There might be one person for whom being celibate feels really freeing and feels really, it helps them feel more whole. There might be a, a second person for whom that exact same practice feels really limiting, feels really negative, and reinforces negative beliefs that they have about themselves, that they have about intimacy. Right, so the difference really is in, I think one, having that self-knowledge and that self-exploration and then when I say healthy pursuit of pleasure, so healthy meaning like, and this is the part where I have to put my sex ed hat on, and I'm like, all right, y'all use condoms and get tested, you know, like all of those basic health requirements, you use contraception if you, if you don't want to get pregnant, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also talking about pleasure, so meaning what is your motivation in having sex? Are you having sex because you feel like you are obligated are you having sex because you're trying to distract yourself from something happening in your life that you don't want to think about and sex is a convenient way to not think about it? Um, can you only have sex when you're intoxicated? Right? To me, that might be a red flag. Okay, if you can only have sex when you're intoxicated, maybe there's something else that needs to be addressed before we can go into that healthy pursuit of pleasure that I was talking about. Um, so yeah, it can look very different for every different definitely really make you grow, you know, you be celibate. <laughs> that was a really fun experience. It's good for some people. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> for some of us. A lot of people, a lot of my friends are like, girl, what? But um, it is what it is, you know. <laughs> I'm back. But <laughs> All right, y'all. Um, so, okay, so. I feel like this is an interesting question when it comes to just being intimate. And I feel like a lot of women, I'm not, I 
feel, I feel like I used to have this uh, problem, if I should even call it a problem, but like, what is the, like, how do you get the confidence to um, ask for what exactly what you want when being intimate with someone else? Yeah, so I think that's something that's a lot easier said than done, especially depending on what specific messages you received, especially as a young person, right? Like as to that whole story that I was telling earlier, the stuff that we hear and that we internalize when we're very young about sexuality, whether or not it's being told directly to us, right? It's like what we hear people talking about over the dinner table, what we see in the movies, what we hear people, I mean nowadays it's what we see people saying on social media. I think about all the things that my baby sister is 11 years old. So watching her kind of come of age in this very like Instagram era and a lot of the messages that she's getting about what it means to be sexually desirable, what it means to be sexually active, why do people have sex, what is sex about. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna speak in very generalized terms because of, of the nature of the conversation we're having today. Obviously it's a lot more nuanced than this, but in general, um, our sort of mass media, mass culture perception of sex is sex is something that men want, something that men do to women, uh, and something that women are either kind of passively okay with, actively hate, or they really, really like it, but that's only certain types of women, yeah. right? And those certain types of women are women who are not eligible for serious romantic consideration. The hoes, the thoughts, right? And not just they're not romantic, romantically viable, but they're almost like less human, right? Like I have less of an obligation to be kind to that person, to be thoughtful of that person's emotions, to see that person as a whole human being. Mm -hmm. So I, I was speaking for myself. I was somebody who, when I was when I was in high school, I probably would have said that I had a very high sex drive. Now as an adult, I look back on it and I think I had a very normal sex drive for a teenager. I was a horny teenager like the teenagers are supposed to be, right? But here I am in my health class seeing the adults in the room tell me girls don't get horny. And here I am seeing movies and TV shows where the girl's always the one saying, no, I don't want to have sex, I don't want to have sex. And I'm seeing these music videos where the girls who do want to have sex are a certain type of girl. So 15, 16 year old me was like, okay, well, if I'm interested in sex, then that must mean that I'm this certain type of girl. And so for what that meant for me personally is that when I got into a really unhealthy relationship with somebody who thought that they could treat me a certain type of way and that I was a certain type of girl, I was like, oh, okay, this makes sense. Mm -hmm. So for me, it ended up being something that was on that kind of extreme end of the spectrum that this was a very toxic and abusive relationship. But I think even for people who don't experience you know, abusive relationships, they might experience relationships that are very one-sided right. and feel like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. This is how it's supposed to be, right? Like, like that's more common, right, the one-sided? Absolutely. Um, you hear even in little things like, you know, I'm not gonna make people raise their hands, but if I were to have a room full of women and ask them to raise their hands, who had an orgasm first time you had sex? Right, there have been times where I've asked that question, right, there have been times where I've asked that question and people laugh. Like, <laughs> straight up laugh, like, what do you mean? Like, that's not possible. It is possible. You know, it's possible not to bleed the first time you have sex. It's possible not to be in pain the first time you have sex. It's possible to have a pleasurable experience. 
relationships with people who actively do want them to be happy, right? Like, it's not that their partner doesn't want them to experience pleasure. It's that that person has internalized so many years of being told your pleasure is not important. Right. It's wrong for you to want pleasure. If you want pleasure, that makes you this certain type of girl. Um, you know, one of the, I'm thinking about this because I had a customer in the shop recently, which is where I end up doing a lot of my sex ed for adults, quite frankly, is people come in for a retail experience and then surprise, they're getting a sex ed experience. Um, but I had this couple come in where um, it was a, a husband and a wife, and the husband was essentially saying, like, you know, I my partner, my wife is a husband having orgasms. I was showing him this particular product that feels a lot like oral sex for clitoris. And I was like, this could be really good for people who have a hard time having orgasms. And he was like, yeah, the only time that she's ever had an orgasm was from oral sex, but she won't let me do it because she's so uncomfortable with her body. And that's a very, very common thing to hear from people that, yeah, it's pleasurable and I enjoy it a lot, but I'm so uncomfortable. And I'm going to be honest, people aren't born being uncomfortable with their bodies, right? People don't come out the womb being like, there's something wrong with me. Right. People learn to be uncomfortable with their bodies and specifically learn to be uncomfortable with their vulvas because, I mean, I'm just speaking for myself, I remember I had a whole bunch of shame around that before I became sexually active because my mom didn't talk to me about genitals, that I didn't learn about it in school because I was growing up in Texas. The only thing that I ever heard about vaginas was that they were stinky. So I was like, oh, I guess mine must be stinky. That's what everybody said. That's what all the jokes are about. Like, oh, it smells like fish. That, so that must be a really unpleasant thing for someone to be happy to be close to. And it wasn't until I got older, and now I'm at, so I'm at the point now where I check my cervical fluid every day. Me and my man have a very strong relationship. I strongly encourage it. Um, it's very easy, you know, just a little, a little check in the shower so you can stay connected to what's happening downstairs. Um, so now I'm like, oh, I'm not scared about that at all. It's a, it's a beautiful, magical wonderland that has all these amazing superpowers. It's like a cool part of my body. But at the time, I was like, oh, okay, of course, no one wanted to be anywhere near this. Right. It's a secret and a shameful thing. Um, I think for myself, I was very lucky to get involved in sexual and reproductive justice at an age where I was still able to unlearn some of those things relatively young. But I think the older that we get, the more it takes actually applied effort to really start rewriting those scripts. Because as we all know, right, your brain is developing all the way up until you hit about 25, 26. And then at that point, you're, you're fully baked, right? Like those, those neurons have set up where they are. And that's not to say that change is impossible. It just means that change takes a lot more effort. Because now you're working through beliefs that maybe you had for 10, 20, 30 years about something that is, is very personal and very intimate. That is really true because I know, like in college, I met so many women who didn't even like know what it look, they looked like down there. Like they were so afraid to just check it out, they didn't even know that they were like that they peed out of a different hole. <laughs> it was a lot. Yeah, not a lot, but it's just you know it was eye opening to like I was just always curious, so like it was nothing for me to grab a beer and stuff. Um, so. But do you think masturbation is like important to know like what you want and to kind of like um, learn to like I guess like be connected with the the, the young? <laughs> yes, the young me. Um, so I would say yes with a big asterisk. So um, like I was saying earlier, a healthy sex life is going to look different for every single person. Um, we're all friends here, so I'm going to be personal about myself. I think when people see me, they see me talking 
thousands and thousands of vibrators and just, right. you know, masturbate like six times a day because, you know, why wouldn't you? And there have definitely been points in time in my life where I have masturbated six times a day. I mean, again, I was a very horny teenager, except what teenagers are, they're horny, but it's pretty much all they are. years back I was teaching a, 
a self-care class for a group of 11th grade girls. Um, and so the whole class was about, you know, holistic wellness and meditation and emotional well-being and setting goals. It was a beautiful class. And there was one day where we were making sort of our self-care like toolkit, right? So we were talking about the difference between self-care, self-indulgence, and self-harm. And so the way that we first defined it was self-care is stuff that you do that it brings you from kind of down here to being at baseline. Like it helps you recover or feel better. Self-indulgence is stuff that, you know, might make you feel good for a moment, but if you do too much of it, it's gonna kind of go overboard. And then self-harm being anything that you do that's actually getting you further away from a goal or further away from what balance feels like for you. So, you know, these girls knew that I taught sex ed. I was also their sex ed teacher. And so in this class, um, when we were talking about your brainstorming different strategies, masturbation came up. And at first they wanted to put masturbation in the category of um, self-indulgence, right? And then this one girl was like, well, miss, wouldn't it kind of be considered self-harm? I was like, why do you think that? She was like, well, because, you know, if you masturbate a lot, it's like bad for you, it's bad for like, like muscles and stuff. Like she very clearly like had kind of halfway heard something somewhere and didn't really know exactly what she had heard or exactly what the information was, but was like basically saying, if you masturbate too much, it's gonna like, you're gonna break something. Right. Um, now, Again, we're talking about teenagers. So as a teenager, yeah, definitely there were some days where I was like, did I bring something? Like, oh, I, I went a little bit too ham this um, this Sunday afternoon, wasting my time. But, but is, is it time wasted? Is it time wasted? It's a great question. That's a great question. <laughs> is it time wasted? Um, but I think, so anatomically speaking, you can get used to a certain way of having an orgasm. Meaning, um, for example, at the at if you go into any sex shop, you'll find the super cheap toys that only have one setting. They got like an on-off button. They're like ten bucks, right? So those types of toys, what I usually tell people is, you get this toy, it's not gonna hurt you. But if you use this toy for more than a couple of weeks, your body's gonna get used to that one setting, and then you're gonna come back in here being like, your vibrator broke my body. You know, I can't come anymore. No, you can't come from that one setting anymore because your body is habituated to it. Um, this is something that I, I talk about at length in, in workshops, but essentially all toys are giving different types of stimulation, they're giving different types of sensation. Our body can get used to a certain type of sensation, but there's almost nothing you can do to your body that's going to make you unable to experience other kinds of stimulation. Um, the exception to that, honestly, is when we're talking about penises. Penises actually can get desensitized to certain types of stimul stimulation in such a way that it makes them har it makes it harder to have an orgasm um, from other kinds of stimulation. Case in point, uh, again, a lot of couples that I work with who are looking for solutions to their sex lives will be something like, um, you know, my boyfriend watches porn twice a day and jerks off all the time, and now he can't stay erect when we're having penetrative sex. Mm. Right? Like that's a pretty common thing that happens, and yet I more often hear women coming to me with the fear of like, am I gonna break myself? Am I gonna ruin my ability to have pleasure if I use this toy? Then I hear people asking men like, hey, you jerk off less, right? And that to me speaks way more to how we think about male sexuality and female sexuality than anything else. I think a lot of times people think of female sexuality, especially female masturbation, mm -hmm. as like sprinkles. Like that's extra, you know, that's something you do for fun 
but it's not something you need to live. Whereas, like, people really talk about, I mean, guys especially talk about jerking off as, like, if I, like, if I don't do this, I will die. And I, I have had, in high school classes, I've had um, young girls, like, actually shocked that blue balls was not a serious medical condition because they really believed that, like, if a guy got a boner and didn't ejaculate, then he would have to go to the hospital for his blue balls, right? So just putting that out there, that actually if there's anyone who needs to be worried about masturbating too much, it actually kills his penises more often than not. Maybe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually uh, just watched Sex Ed on Netflix. Anybody seen that? No. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting too because it was my first like I guess visual of seeing like a guy unable to masturbate and then while the girl she was just like going in. So I thought that was really um, interesting to see. So yeah. <laughs> um, now I feel like it's time to go and on orgasm. Um, I read online uh, different information, um, depending on the source, of course. So how many different types of orgasms um, are there? I know there's like penetration and then like the stimulation, st stimulation. And then is it the third one a combination of both? And why, I guess, I'm gonna ask you, even though I know it's probably not the appropriate to ask it. Why is it so um, push? Why is it so like tough for women to experience um, or, or orgasms from penetration. Yes. Okay, so like I said, I teach workshops about this. The workshops are usually close to two hours, about that two hours. So again, I'm gonna try to give you the spark notes version of it. So basically, um, has anyone ever seen, there's a little chart that shows like the sexual, the sex, human sexual response. And it usually looks very similar. It's a really basic chart. So it starts off kind of low, and then you have the arousal period that's going up and up and up. And then you have this plateau period, and that's where you know most of sexual activity is happening. And then there's an orgasm, or maybe there's a couple of orgasms, and then we come back down. Sounds like a baseline. Yeah, it's almost like the, the like storyline yeah. graph. Yeah. So the human sexual response works very similarly <laughs> to that classic like story, um, react story. So um, the arousal process is essentially the period of time where the body is preparing itself for sex. So what I mean by that is, like, perfect example, okay. So, has anyone here ever showered with a partner? You know, you shower with a partner and you're like scrubby scrubby. And I remember one of the, I was like a college boyfriend or something, and we were showering, and then he saw me like washing my vulva, and he was like, whoa, what are you doing? And I was like, washing my genitals, like what are you talking about? <laughs> Nobody 
So you can, the next time you're in the shower, you can take a finger, usually the middle finger is best, so it's the longest, it's like your, your best shot. Insert it vaginally, and you should feel the cervix basically immediately. It's only a couple of inches inside the vagina, and again, it's gonna feel like a hard kind of circular structure that you can almost move your finger around, okay? So the fluid that's around the cervix, that's your cervical fluid, um, once you get into the habit of checking it, you'll notice that the consistency changes depending where you are in your cycle, depending on um, you know hormonal what's going on with you, depending on how hydrated you are. So it's a nice way to kind of check in with what's happening with your, your vaginal and your cervical balance. Now, um, if anyone has ever had their cervix hit during sex, you know that it's not a pleasurable experience. Right? Like if you ever experience really deep penetration and you're like, oh, I feel like I'm being stabbed in the stomach, that's usually because the cervix is being pushed. So the cervix is super, super sensitive, but I just told y'all it's about one finger's length inside the vagina, so how does that work? Uh, when somebody is getting aroused, their, their body is preparing for sex. So I'm gonna ask you to hold the mic for me so I can demo something with my hands. Okay, so this is the vaginal opening and this is the cervix right here. And it's really, really close. When someone's getting turned on, the cervix pulls back and up. So it actually makes the vagina longer. And so there's room for a toy or a toy or a penis or whatever that person is or isn't being penetrated by. There's actually more room in the vagina for that penetration to happen and for it to feel comfortable without hitting the cervix. And there's all types of other stuff that are happening at the same time too, right? The G-spot is filling up with, um, with increased blood flow, so it's becoming larger and more sensitive. The increased blood flow is contributing to lubrication, which is what helps someone be wet, so there's not as much friction, they're not experiencing discomfort. All these numbers of magical things happen to get the body ready for sex, and the same thing happens for someone with a penis, right? There's all these things happening that are getting their body ready for sex, getting their body ready to receive pleasure. So, that arousal part of the graph that I mentioned, when we're talking about a literal sexual experience between two people, what is that period of time? Foreplay. Right? The period of time where the body is getting ready for sex to be pleasurable. So if you're rushing past foreplay, your body is literally not in a place where you will be able to receive pleasure. And I don't just mean mentally, I mean physically. Right? If you're trying to have sex, so that process I just showed you earlier of the cervix pulling back and up, that's called vaginal tenting. If you're trying to have sex and your cervix is still really close to the front of the vagina, you are not going to have a pleasurable sexual experience. Right? You're gonna be like, ow, 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 I'm uncomfortable. And you know what the number one thing is that knocks somebody down from that arousal ladder is pain. So even if you were feeling into it, that little bit of pain is gonna knock you right back to the beginning. And trying to push past it or force past it is gonna make everything worse. So when I say like, um, when I have people who are coming to me asking about having more pleasure during sex or having more orgasms, usually the first thing that I'm going to is not okay, what's happening at the very, very end during climax when things are super intense? It's, let's start at the very, very beginning. Physiologically, what we need to feel aroused, we need to feel safe, like nothing's gonna happen to us. We need to feel comfortable, like, you know, oh, I'm not, there's not something like hard digging into my side, or oh, this room is not, you know, a million degrees, or zero degrees. And we need to feel like we have the ability to communicate, if we're having partnered sex, the ability to communicate our needs and our desires, and our boundaries. All of those things are important. So those are sort of the recipe to having an orgasm. And then when you start to ask about what kinds of orgasms there are, when I teach workshops about this, there's a whole slide with all the different kinds of orgasms. I think there's at least like 10 or 15 that we have on that slide. So there's 
don't know if you've seen like the stories of that lady who couldn't think herself to orgasm. So that's something that theoretically every human body is capable of doing, but you know, for her, if she just woke up being able to do it, for you or me, you might have to sit and really work on being able to access that form of orgasm. Mm -hmm. um, but fundamentally speaking, if we're talking about somebody with, with a vulva, with a vagina, there's clitoral orgasms, uh, penetrative or G-spot orgasms, and then blended orgasms. There's also A-spot orgasms. The A-spot is kind of like the G-spot, but it's closer to the cervix. Um, there's also thought orgasms and nipple orgasms and um, anal orgasms, all different types of orgasms that exist. So it's interesting for people with, with clitorises, if you've never seen a diagram of what the clitoris looks like on the inside, I encourage you to look it up. Um, there's some sexologists who believe that actually every orgasm that someone with a clitoris has is a clitoral orgasm because the arms of the clitoris inside the body actually extend down around the vaginal opening, and depending on your specific physiology, can even extend down towards the anal opening. So people who can have orgasms from anal sex, that's theorized to be because the arms of the clitoris internally are actually getting internal stimulation. Fun fact. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm gonna pass it right back. Yeah. So what are some like common, um, I guess, reasons that like prevent women from experiencing orgasms? So the number one reason that women don't experience orgasms is that they don't feel entitled to them. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about not just with a partner, but also on your own, right? right. Like if someone on their own, I'm gonna be honest, especially being an audience of black women here, there's a lot of things specifically, I think, within black communities, but it, no matter where in the diaspora you come from, right, we all have some kind of fucked up baggage around what it means for a black woman to be sexual and what it means for a black woman to enjoy and, and really take pleasure in her sexuality. And so depending, again, on what specific context you're coming from, what experiences you have, or women in your family have had, or things that you were culturally passed down from people in your family, you might be holding on to a lot of beliefs about how entitled you are to sexual pleasure that you may or may not be consciously aware of when you're actually interacting with somebody sexually. Um, so this is why, you know, way earlier when we were talking about this, I mentioned introspection is a really important piece of this puzzle, that it actually takes, you know, people will come into the shop where I work looking for a toy they can buy that's gonna fix 25 years of trauma, right? And there's no toy that you can buy that's gonna fix that for you. It takes actually a lot of introspective work, a lot of time really considering, do I believe that I deserve sexual pleasure? What do I think it means about me if I experience sexual pleasure? And then past that, as I was saying earlier, we hold on to a lot of trauma in our bodies, especially if you're someone who is prone to holding that physical and muscular tension. Um, Vaginismus is a, a condition where people have extraordinarily tight pelvic floors. Um, it's a very poorly understood condition because there's not very robust research around it right now. But the thinking around it is that one of the major factors is experience with trauma. Because what they're finding is that one of the most effective treatments for vaginismus is actually not you know, vaginal dilators and creams and suppositories and all that, it's talk therapy and working through trauma. Um, I actually saw recently a story of a woman that she shared that she had vaginismus her whole life and it clicked for her, like literally she was in therapy talking about an experience, um, a traumatic pelvic exam that she had as a doctor when she was a kid, 
right? Because she had some kind of injury, the doctor had to look down there, and it was, she felt like her boundaries were crossed, or she didn't feel like she had control in that moment. She talked about it in therapy on Friday night, Saturday morning, woke up, totally fine, right? Somebody who had not been able to even put tampons in for her whole life. And the next day was able to have penetrative sex totally comfortably, totally um, happily, because she had figured out the root of what was making her so uncomfortable, what was causing all this pain, was feeling like if somebody is you know, in my personal space, that's an unsafe situation. Um, I would really recommend, especially if you self-identify as somebody who's experienced trauma, although I would argue that we all have, like everybody, every single person has. Um, but especially if you're someone who gets a lot of benefit out of that, I'd recommend checking out a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, this has kind of been a Bible in the trauma healing community for a really long time because it talks about the physiology of how traumatic memories actually embed in our body and in our behavior. And sexuality is a really big one, even if your trauma was not sexual in nature. Um, so not feeling entitled to orgasms, trauma around sexuality or not around sexuality. And then the third one is just not knowing where the pleasure parts are. Um, I mentioned before, I teach an anatomy of, of pleasure workshop. A lot of times, um, if you had sex at it all, you probably saw diagrams of body parts that showed you all the parts of the body involved in making babies, right? Like, oh, this is where the eggs come out, and this is where the baby grows, and this is where the baby comes out of. But you probably did not see diagrams that labeled the parts of the body where pleasure comes from, right? right? And like how, like, most people go their whole lives without seeing a diagram of what the clitoris looks like. The whole clitoris, not just the little tiny piece that you can see outside. Most people go their whole lives without seeing a diagram of where the prostate is, for somebody who has a penis. Like, they just don't know where it is in the body. Um, and certainly, you know, if you've ever done any Googling about the G-spot, you know that there's a lot of things about internal anatomy, people who have vaginas and, and all the things that are going on inside vaginas, that are so poorly researched um, that like, so the G-spot used to be considered a myth by a lot of people, um, and now there's people who, like the A-spot is kind of the new pleasure point that sexuality educators are talking about a lot, and I see people saying like, oh, the A-spot is a myth, it's made up, as if there aren't hundreds and thousands of women saying like, this is my experience that I'm having in my body, this is the sensation that I'm having, and I'm being told like, no, you're making it up, whatever. So, learning actually which parts of the body are involved in pleasure, what types of stimulation those parts of the body are responsive to. So this is something that comes up a lot, again, in the retail setting at the shop where I work. Some parts of the body really like vibration, some parts don't. Some parts of the body really like um, pressure, some parts don't. If you haven't had the opportunity to learn this from a classroom setting, you're probably figuring it out by trial and error. And maybe you're lucky and that trial and error is pretty seamless for you. You figure it out in a couple of goes. Or maybe you're not so lucky and you're doing a lot of trial and error to the point where you're starting to feel like there's something wrong with you for not being able to get that success that you're looking for. Um, so really educating yourself about literally how does the physical aspect of pleasure work. Because it's not just an emotional or a psychological thing. It is very much a physical thing. Thank you. I am. I thought I knew a lot, but I don't know <laughs> <so> much <laughs> tonight. And I was gonna go in on like um, tantra sex and like you know manifesting, but I feel like we kind of we should get into some questions. Um, unless, how would you like to go vote? Yeah, I want to go in into like tantra sex and like what is spirituality <laughs> manifesting through sex or 
See, I want to get into the questions. Y'all got questions. I have one question that I need to ask. But other than that, I want to do a vote. So um, hands up for uh, manifesting cancer sex.
you know, even for me, I don't do a lot of sacred like sexuality work. Uh, but even as a tarot reader, people come to me in their moments of most vulnerability. Right. And if I were a different type of person, it would be really easy to manipulate that for my own personal gain. And so I think that's something that you see not just within Tantra, but really anything where we're talking about sexuality or um, sensuality or things that we are not encouraged to talk about normally. Um, a lot of times people are coming to those sources because they're in pain and they're in search of, of something. And unfortunately, if you haven't been taught the discernment to know what's something that's actually good and beneficial versus something that might be harmful, um, it's really hard to recognize those things, especially when you're in that moment of pain and really needing something. Um, but you know, whether or not you go full on into Tantra, I think there's lots of ways for like regular, everyday people to incorporate more of that sacred sexuality and sacred sensuality in their day to day. If you're not already turned on to Afrosexology, I would encourage you to follow that account like yesterday. <laughs> Um, uh, and the Whitney is a sexuality educator. She actually calls herself a sexuality doula, who does a lot of work around, I don't know if she explains the country just specifically, um, but she talks a lot about cultivating a sensuality or a sexuality practice like in your day-to-day. So one of the things that she got really big for a couple of years back was doing um, sensual selfies and talking about like taking sensual selfies of yourself. Um, you know, not necessarily to be seen by anybody, but to see yourself in a sensual lens and things like that. Those little practices of sensuality or sexuality or however you want to think about it can be extraordinarily beneficial whether or not you think of yourself as someone who is, you know, uh, a sacred sexuality practitioner, right? That's for a lot of people just what healing looks like. Again, if you've been trained to think of those parts of you as separate or bad, it's a way to welcome those parts of you back in. Thank you, thank you. So I'm gonna go ahead and read um, one of the questions that I received via email. I felt like, uh, I feel like a lot of women could definitely relate to this, so um, probably will cover a lot of questions that people may have, but if not, um, you know, feel free to speak up. We have like probably a couple of minutes after this to answer a couple more and then, you know, we can mingle or whatever. So I'll read the question aloud and then Haley, if you can answer it. Okay. <laughs> Okay, <clears throat> from Anonymous. <laughs> I've never experienced an orgasm before. Usually whenever I express that to anyone, their answers is to just simply experiment with yourself and to go from there. Find out what you like and dislike, but I've been there, done that, it's still nothing. I only get the feeling of sensation when using a vibrator with direct, um, I only get a, a feeling of sensation when using a vibrator with direct contact but nothing with my hands and typically no one else's. Why is that? I definitely get turned on and I definitely um, have wanted to be with someone physically, but when that moment comes, I feel nothing. Almost dis, um, discounted, or disconnected. Almost disconnected from myself and whomever I'm getting ready to sleep with. So I guess they're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, so first of all, that is an extraordinarily common experience. Um, again, that I especially hear women express I have interest in sex, the idea of sex sounds sexy, but when it comes to actually feeling sexual sensation or having a sexually pleasurable experience, it's like something's disconnected. Right. Um, I think the, the thing that stood out to me about that question in particular is this person saying, you know, I feel sensation from like direct stimulation of the vibrator 
other kind of physical touch. That to me sounds like, you know, going back to that little arousal graph that we were talking about earlier, it sounds like for whatever reason, that person's body is not able to do the physiological steps they need to get ready for sexual pleasure, right? So the vaginal tenting, the increased blood flow, the increased lubrication, the increased sensitivity, all those things that I was mentioning. Um, my guess would be that it's either one or both of these things. One, that physiologically there's something keeping that from happening, whether that's some kind of hormone imbalance or just literally, you know, they're, they're not spending enough time on foreplay or there's something mentally distracting them so they're not able to relax into that arousal phase. It could also be some kind of experience of trauma that this person is holding on to physiologically that's keeping mm -hmm. them from getting able to do that place. Um, I will say there are plenty of people for whom like they, they really only have orgasms with the aid of a vibrator or with the aid of a toy. That's totally fine. It's a sign that somebody's body is broken. Um, vibrators are, are incredible technology that we're so lucky to have. Like, and I, you know, people will sometimes get frustrated about like, oh, I don't want to have to use something to be able to experience this pleasure. Um, if glasses didn't exist, I would have to walk around all the time not being able to see anything. And luckily glasses exist so I can see things from day to day. If I walked around being like, no, I want to be natural. I want to live a natural way. Uh, I wouldn't be wearing my glasses. I wouldn't have the orthotics in my shoes that keep me from having my feet fall off at the end of the long day. I wouldn't have, you know, my cell phone that keeps me from getting lost in the middle of the West Village when I'm out there for work. Like, all types of things that we do that are not natural, that are ways that we as humans have figured out how to help make our lives easier and more pleasurable. So I think vibrators are a great way to make your life more easy and more pleasurable. That being said, one of the reasons why vibrators are so good at stimulating clitoris specifically um, all right, Donald, the magic wand. You've seen it in porn, don't lie. You know what a magic wand is, right? It's that big old vibrator. It used to be a back massager. So these are the Hitachi wands. So fun story, Hitachi is a Japanese company. These are ba literally their back massagers. They were made to be back massagers. And so many people started using them as sex toys that Hitachi actually sold the patent to Vibratex, which is a sex sexual product company because they were so sick of being affiliated with sex toys. They were like, we're not, we are not a sex toy organization. We make back massagers. So they got rid of the patent entirely. Um, now the reason why the Hitachi works so good as a back massager is that it has a very deep and rumbly vibration to it that penetrates the muscle tissue very well. So you ask anybody who works at a sex shop, have you ever used the Hitachi for a back massage when you're on the clock? They will say yes. Right? It's a really good back massager. It really gets deep into the muscles. It, it breaks up that tension. Now, earlier I was mentioning the clitoris is a lot bigger than what we can see from the outside. There's a whole bunch of it that goes inside, right? So what the Hitachi does is it's rumbling super, super deep vibration that's actually penetrating deeper into the body and stimulating the whole clitoris. So of course, that's gonna give more sensation than someone using their hand on the outside of the body to stimulate the clitoris. Right? Your hand is not going to be moving at the frequency of a vibrator. And even if it was, it's not going to be at the depth of vibration that's going to stimulate the whole clitoris. Right? That's the case scenario. You're getting the part that you can see on the outside. So if you're somebody who only is able to have orgasms from a vibrator, that's not something that a sign that your body is wrong. It's a sign that your body needs a little more heavy-duty stimulation to get over that 
point of climax. If you want to find ways to experience more sensation from things besides that vibrator, one of the best things that you can do for yourself is to experiment with deep breath work and internal awareness of your genital area. So that might look like a yoni egg practice. So literally inserting some kind of cable weight or, or yoni egg, if, make sure it's of a body safe material. Um, but inserting something vaginally so that you can actually feel the different parts of the vagina. Um, the vagina actually doesn't have that many nerve endings once you get past the first couple inches or so. And so if you really want to be able to feel what's happening in the deepest parts of the body, you have to practice that. Especially, as I said earlier, if you have any kind of trauma, sexual or otherwise, if you have any kind of hang-ups about what it means to enjoy sex, it's going to take a little bit of extra work to get that, that sense of body awareness and get into that deep sensation. Um, so yeah, for this, for this person in particular, like if they came into the shop where I work and they were like, okay, you know, my budget is $1,000, like what can you sell that's going to fix my problem? I probably would say there are some toys I can suggest that will offer you stimulation that might help you explore sensation. But the number one thing I'm hearing here is that there's something keeping you from being able to fully relax and physiologically set the stage for an orgasm to happen. Um, so whether that's, you know, you're with somebody and there's something about being with somebody that's making you anxious, or even just you're on your own and you're in your head about whatever it is that is going to keep you from having that experience. Um, yeah, that's, that's my whole. Gracias. <laughs> uh, we probably have uh, we have time for like a question. Um, anybody want to ask anything before we go into uh, the next segment? Come on, y'all. Y'all said y'all some questions earlier. I ain't trying to cook y'all. No, 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 no. Come, come. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there a way to practice having different kinds of orgasms that you might need to be able to have? Yeah. Like during penetrative sex, if someone can't have um, an orgasm during penetrative sex, if they're able to learn how without the use of a vibrator or something like that. Great question. It is a good question. Um, and I feel like the answer is not going to be satisfying because the answer is yes and no. So yes, it's possible to build more awareness of a certain kind of sensation that maybe will lead to somebody having an orgasm from it. Um, so that specific question is a question that I get asked a lot, uh, especially in my, my retail jobs, because it'll be folks coming in and being like, oh, I really want to be able to come from, from sex. That's usually how they phrase it. Like, I want to be able to come from sex. And I'm like, well, if you're coming and you're interacting with another person, like, I don't know exactly what you're doing, but you're having some form of sex. Um, I would also say, like, if you're having penetrative sex and you're having an orgasm with the aid of a Hitachi, or maybe a smaller, less, like, bulky vibrator, right? Like, you're still having an orgasm from sex. Um, people who do have penetrative orgasms, as I said earlier, right, there's some psychologists who believe that's just another form of clitoral orgasm. Like, we're all having clitoral orgasms. It's perfectly normal. Now, if somebody wants to build that awareness and maybe learn how to have orgasms from sex, I would say one really big caveat and one thing I would be concerned about is why do you want to have that experience, right? Is it because you just want to explore your body and be more aware of all the things your body can do? Great, that's awesome. Is it because you feel like you're a failure of a partner if you can't have sex from your partner's penis? Okay, 
because the way that you have orgasms is the way that you have orgasms, right? Like you don't owe it to somebody to have orgasms in the specific way that they want you to have orgasms. Um, so all that being said, I think the main things that I would recommend or advise is one, a breathwork practice. And when I say breathwork, I don't just mean like sitting and breathing, although it's also very good for you. Um, but specifically doing breath work that helps to open up space in the pelvic floor and build awareness of the pelvic floor. So the pelvic floor, I'm talking about this hammock of muscles that's in between the hips, in between your pelvis. Um, the diaphragm, which is the muscle that helps you breathe, is connected to that hammock of muscles. And so a lot of times actually people who have a hard time orgasming will report that when they're experiencing sexual pleasure, they hold their breath. It's like a reflexive thing that they hold their breath. And holding your breath is actually creating tightness down here. It's keeping you from being able to experience pleasure. So learning how to breathe deeply. Um, in my yoga classes, I'll usually tell people to breathe all the way into their hips. And for people who are really in touch with their root chakra, to put it euphemistically, people who are really in touch with their sexuality, sometimes breathing all the way into your hips by itself starts to create sexual sensation. Um, I actually went to an orgasmic breath work meditation workshop, like a professional conference once, being like, this will be funny and like cute. And then I was like, oh no, this, I'm, I'm not gonna, about to have an orgasm in front of all these people. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, but it goes to show the power of right, just breath work alone. Nothing sexually stimulating was happening, but just that deep breathing, that breathing all the way into the bowl of the hips can start to create sexual sensation, assuming that you have the, um, the awareness and, and the relaxation to be aware of what's happening vaginally. Um, so breath work is a really big one. Any kind of movement practice where you're working on opening up the hips and creating more space in the pelvic floor. Um, a lot of people will focus on Kegel, which is a strengthening exercise. But for most people, so the vagina is a muscle, right? So Kegels are supposed to make that muscle stronger. It's like you're doing reps to make that muscle stronger. Yes, right? You're, so you're squeezing to try to make that muscle stronger, um, usually with some kind of weight. But for most people, especially people who have trauma, your pelvic floor is really tight, meaning that those muscles are squeezing a lot already. So if I'm walking around with my fist squeezed all day, being like, oh, my hand really hurts. I know it will make my hand feel better. I'll squeeze it even harder, right? Kegel exercises are not gonna help somebody with a tight pelvic floor experience more pleasure. What they actually need is more relaxation, more space, more openness. And that's what I mean by the breath work and the movement practice. So whether that's yoga, Pilates, even just a little bit of light stretching, where you're making more room in this space that's the container for pleasure for you. Um, and then the last thing I would say is, you know, there are certain products and things that are sold um, at shops like the one where I work. There's like herbal supplements or topical things that can be used that are meant to help draw blood into the genital area and promote muscle relaxation. Almost every single sexual enhancement product on 
libido or sexuality actually contains an active ingredient that if you have HSV or if you have the herpes virus can trigger an outbreak, right? Like that's perfectly legal for somebody to sell you that and to not tell you, by the way, if you have herpes, it's gonna trigger an outbreak. So please, please do your research. Please don't buy sex toys off Amazon because they have a return policy. Please, please, please don't buy your sex toys at Ricky's because the people who work there do not know the difference between body safe and non-body safe materials. And please do not buy the boner pills in the bodega. Because <laughs> nobody knows what's in those. Right? If you want to enhance your sex life, and I'm not just saying this because I have a personal like vet like economic stake in it. I mean genuinely for your well-being, the best thing that you can do is go to a sex-positive retailer that has a highly trained staff, or go to a sex ed workshop or a classroom environment, or go and find a sexuality educator um, who is somehow credentialed, who has you know, certifications that they can show you, I know what I'm talking about, I'm not just somebody who talks about us on the internet, right? Like real sex educators, and ask them for their expert opinion. Because quite frankly, we live in a world where the vast majority of people do not get good sex ed, which means the vast majority of people giving you sex advice you should genuinely ask, ask uh, second questions about and have second thoughts about. Because it is a place where there is very poor regulation and there are a lot of people giving, unfortunately, incorrect information. Thank you, thank you. This was a very insightful um, conversation. <laughs> hey. Hey, what's up? I have a question. I came in the room a little bit late, so sorry. Um, you seem to be a very knowledgeable person. Definitely is. Just from a male perspective, what I'm sensing is that women are very complicated. <laughs> that what you got from all of this? Yeah, I'm getting it. It's just, just, just from a male perspective, what would you suggest? How, how should a man just interpret that whole interaction when there's appears to be a challenge and, and not you don't want to personalize it. There's a communication piece, right? Like how do you deal with that? Yeah. So uh, thank you for that question. So I don't know if you heard me mentioning earlier, but I, I teach anatomy of pleasure workshops and usually in those workshops I start off by saying there's a lot of talk about men and women being very different sexually, but when you look at the physiology, we're almost exactly the same. There's actually more differentiation between you know, one woman to another woman than there is between women in general and men in general. And I'm not just talking about like, oh, everybody gets horny, but I mean literally that graph I was talking about earlier of arousal is the exact same process happening for men as what's happening for women. Blood flow and muscle relaxation is what creates the conditions for sex to be pleasurable. Um, even going back all the way to like fetal development, if you look at the cells that eventually develop into genitals in the womb, it's the same group of cells. A clitoris is made of the exact same tissue that a penis is made of. So in my anatomy of pleasure workshop, I'll usually say, all right, you know, if you're somebody who has a penis, you have no idea how a clitoris oh, it's like so mysterious and complicated, what do penises like? Suction, okay, so suck on it. Like not to be crass, but Literally, like what kinds, what does, what do penises not like? They don't like dry friction. So maybe don't touch it while it's completely bone dry, like add a little bit of lubrication. So there's a couple of things that just, even without getting into the more emotional and communicative parts of it, just on the physiology level, there's a lot of things that men can do to educate themselves and maybe demystify a lot of aspects of female physiology 
um, that maybe feel more foreign or more different or more complicated than they actually are, right? Um, like, I, I wish I had my PowerPoint with me so I could show y'all, like, the tissue that makes up the scrotum is the same tissue that makes up the labia, so the ball sac and, like, the, the lips of the vulva. So those two parts of the body like similar types of stimulation. Even without having to have a whole conversation with somebody, you can start to get a better and a more empathetic sense of what that person maybe is more likely to like or not like. And then when we get into the topic of, okay, you know, this person seems like they're having a hard time experiencing pleasure, as we were talking about earlier with the, the question of consent, a big part of why that might be happening is, does the person feel like they have the right to feel entitled to pleasure? Do they feel like they can say no to things they don't want to do? Do they feel like they can say yes to things that they do want to do? And one of the most beneficial ways that somebody, as maybe the partner with more power, more privilege, more maybe a feeling of entitlement to sexual pleasure, right? Like, I don't know that many guys who go into a sexual situation not expecting to have an orgasm. Like, not only am I probably gonna have an orgasm, but the orgasm is how I know that sex is, is done happening. So if you're the person who's coming into the interaction with more of that attitude, you have even more of a responsibility to say, do you like this? You know, do you want to ask specific questions? Not just like, is this okay, but <clears throat> harder, softer, faster, longer, whatever, to give lots of suggestions, to give lots of um, open-ended questions or options to that person so that they feel that they can actually be as entitled to pleasure as you are in that moment. Um, and then beyond that, like, when it comes to personalizing the issue, again, we are human beings, men and women are not that different in very much the same way that a man does not want to be pressed about it when he's having a hard time having an orgasm or he's having a hard time being fully erect, let's say, or maybe he's having a hard time delaying orgasm as long as he would like to, right? Like, what are the what are the things that men want when they're experiencing that kind of performance anxiety? They want to feel like they'll still be accepted. They want to feel like uh, whatever performance anxiety they have is not going to end intimacy, right? That, like, just because this thing is happening doesn't mean that we have to stop interacting completely. And I think a lot of that goes for, for women who have a hard time having orgasms, too. For a lot of women who have a hard time having orgasms, part of the pressure that they put on themselves is, oh, like, if this person knows I'm not going to have an orgasm, then he's not going to want to be intimate with me. Whether that means he's not going to want to keep fooling around with me and I like what's happening, or he's not going to want to keep talking to me, period, if I'm not able to do this thing for him. And that expectation of performance of that pressure is exactly the opposite thing that's going to create conditions for that person to have pleasure. Um, so yeah, we're, we're all human beings. We all just want to feel accepted and safe and comfortable. And sexually speaking, we all want to um, feel like we can experience pleasure and like we have a foundation for experiencing pleasure. Well said, well said. Um, well, it's time to go into our next segment, which is to love a black woman. So that's where you, Haylin, you get to say something that you either love about yourself or you can say something that you love about a particular black woman, so mother, cousin, sister, auntie, friend, or you can say something that you love about black women in general. I mean, I'll Black women as a whole. 
general, there's something so kind of indescribable and so just untouched about the way that we look, the way that we talk, the way that we, I don't know, the way that we are in so many ways. And I think about it especially in this realm of, of sexuality and sexual well-being that, you know, as I, as I kind of alluded to earlier, there are a lot of really complicated expectations placed on black women when it comes to sexuality and how sexual we are and how sexually our bodies are interpreted by other people. Um, but case in point, I spent like eight straight hours on the beach on Saturday, just like napping in the sun and getting super, super brown. And then the next day when I went to work, the first thing my coworker said to me was, wow, you look sun-kissed. I was like, yes, I do. And you know what the white friends can win with me look like? Sunburnt. That's what they look like. So, you know, not like the competition or anything. But just the way that I feel so loved by the sun, the way that like when I see my black women friends, you know, in the summertime, I'm like, oh my god, like I'm all over. You are glowing, like you are, you're infused with gold, like the, the way that your hair looks, the way that your style is. I just I'm obsessed with black women. Me too. Well, where can the people find you if they're interested in um, learning more about sex and for all and everything that you do? Um, so I'm on Instagram. My Instagram is my name, Haylin, H-A-Y-L-I-N dot C-O. Um, and that's also my website, is www.haylin, H-A-Y-L-I-N dot C-O. Um, so if you, right now I'm kind of in a, in a slow point. I'm gearing up for all my school contracts in the summer. But if you're interested in attending a future workshop, I'm hoping to have that fall calendar posted sometime in the next two weeks. Uh, and that anatomy of pleasure workshop will definitely happen soon. Nice, nice. Um, well, thank you all for coming out to Avocado and Honey third year anniversary show in the rain and everything. <laughs> um, yeah, you can follow, thank you, you can follow Avocado and Honey to stay up to date on Instagram or all social media platforms at Avocado and Honey. Um, if you're interested in what I got going on, you can find me on social media at underscore Sandy, S-M-A-N-D-I-E-E. Um, again, I will, well, thank you. Again, thank you. Uh, I will be sending out photos because uh, shout out to lovely Miss Raw Art TV over here. Mars Mercury for holding it down on the camera. Um, I will be emailing you um, the photos from tonight within the next day or so. Um, if you do post any photos from tonight, please use the hashtag avocado honey talk. <laughs> Avocado and Honey Pod, I'm thinking this editing is out there. So use the hashtag Avocado and Honey Pod. Um, feel free to tag me, Haylin, and whoever else um, in your video. Um, that's it. Shout out to 333 Lounge for letting us, um, for hosting us and being such an excellent host. Shout out to um, Homegirl on the Bar. I don't remember your name, but shout out. Thank you. Thank you, Mel. Um, yeah, shout out to you again for coming. This is amazing. I'm so excited. Um, like I said before, um, it's the start of something great, even though we are three years in, it's still the beginning. We still have a lot of work to do, and I'm so grateful y'all are on this journey. So um, now that this is over, go ahead, get a drink, make a friend. Please leave, uh, leave um, don't leave without talking to someone you don't know. Um, let's make some friends, because we're all out here uh, surviving when we get to be together. All right, y'all. That's it. <laughs> Thank you.